0: salutations, Friday the 13th fans. This is Mr. Venom welcoming you to the Crystal Lake Gift Shop. Our doors are now open. Please be careful with the goods on the shelves. Before we get into it, let me go ahead and introduce my coworker. He's going to be manning the cash register. He is our friend, Mr. Mike Merriman. How you doing, Mike? Hey, what's
1: oh. up? I mean, I, f- I figure if I'm covering
0: uh, many of these
1: anthology shows from
0: this time period, what's one more, right? There you go. There you go. I love it. And for episode one, we were able to finagle a guest to come on. Go figure. This is a man that Mike and I have both worked with on the Theme Warriors podcast, along with various guest spots, such as the summer series on the podcast Under the Stairs and things like
2: that. This is our friend, Mr. Doug Tilly. Doug, how the hell are you? I'm doing so well. And really, thank you so much for having me on the very first episode. I mean, this could be the last episode. It all depends on how this whole thing goes.
0: We will see. We'll see how frustrated me and Mike get at each other. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. So, as Mike already alluded to, this is our episode by episode retrospective of the Friday the Thirteenth series, which aired from 1987 to 1990. We get three episode, uh, excuse me, three seasons with 24 episodes each, totaling 72 episodes. And Mike and I are going to do our damnedest to get through all 72. Mike is a veteran of what was it, Burning for Springwood, which is a, also a, a kind of an episode by episode retrospective of the Freddy's Nightmare series. So Mike's got some good experience with some of these cheesy anthology shows of the 80s. I, I know they reviewed stuff like Monsters and Tales from the Crypt. So I'm excited. Pain tolerance. The pain tolerance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should basically it, feel no pain at this point.
1: It's, 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 a, it's a harsh lesson in how nostalgia often does you wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I might be learning that lesson in the coming week. So let's find out. For those who don't know, part of the reason that I wanted to start this was I watched these episodes religiously when I was younger. When they aired you know, back in 87, I watched every single episode. Religious viewer never bothered me that the series had nothing to do with the movie series, which I also already loved at that point. And I have not watched an episode since, so we're literally talking, what, about 32 years plus since I've watched an episode of this series, so I kind of wanted to revisit the series, see if I still have that nostalgic love for it that I think I have, but as Mike says, nostalgia does fail us sometimes, so... So begins our journey. But before we start talking about episode one, I wanted to introduce Doug and ask him a little bit about his history with this series. You know, how did you hear about it? Were you a viewer when it first aired? Stuff like that.
2: Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was I'm a little younger than you, uh, so I did not. I mean, I did definitely watch it when it was originally on, just kind of because it was just something on. For those who are not as old as we are, um, we used to just watch things that were on television because there was nothing else on at the time. So this is just one of those shows that I remember being on a lot. The thing is, it was syndicated well into the 90s. So there was always opportunities to watch an episode here and there. I remember when it first started, though. Because of the same confusion that has plagued this show for the past 32 years, which is its title. I mean, you actually have to really understand that at the time that this show debuted, it must have been right around the time of Freddy's Nightmares, right? I mean, it was it was in those the same couple of years. Maybe Freddy's Nightmares came later. Is that right, Mike? Didn't Freddy's Nightmares uh, start like, eight, like a year
0: after this?
1: The thing is, I know there is definitely overlap because, uh, you know, after you kind of went into your history, I was going to kind of give my spiel about sure. how I watched it in the same block of programming, basically, for I, I guess I just lucked out that my local network, it was either Fox or uh, whatever, like WB was back then, they, they it was either Friday nights or Saturday nights where they threw a block of Freddy's Nightmares Friday the 13th, Tales from the Dark Side of Monsters. So it was kind of like you know, every every Friday or Saturday I knew, okay, here's my two-hour block. And it, I look back on it now, and it's kind of amazing that, wow, this was like on an actual broadcast network. Like I would imagine them trying to sell that now, and they'd be like, well, no. Like what the hell is this
2: wrong with you? Well, We're you know what they would say this. if they tried to sell it now, Mike, is, okay, yeah, we'll do a Friday the 13th series. Uh, It better fucking have Jason Voorhees in it. What (laughs) are you doing? What are you doing creating a series called that without having, you know, the one character that people associate with that title? Again, I don't want to be like angry about it because I was angry about it in 1987 or maybe I wasn't. I was too young probably at that time. I certainly was angry in 1991 or 1992 Uh when I was getting into horror movies and the idea, you know, I just remembered in my brain. I was like. There was a Friday the 13th TV series. Absolutely there was. Well, I mean, I remember it just being about some ridiculous antique shop, but I'm sure that they must incorporate Jason in there at some point, because otherwise, why call it Friday the 13th?
0: Only yeah, to discover
2: it, what everyone discovered, which is that it has no real connection to the Friday the 13th movie mythos whatsoever, outside of the fact that it shares a producer who was really trying to sell his ridiculous show about an antique shop. Mike, you have something to say? <laughs>
1: Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah me, me and doug are are the same age yeah. we, venom's got some years on us, so to kind of put it into context this was this was the late eighties, so not only were we very young, uh, like eight, seven, eight, nine years yeah. old, or right mm-hmm. in there there were there was no internet, so a lot of times when shows would just kind of show up, you didn't have a lot of advanced information. Um Now, maybe, you know, Venom being older than us, maybe he had more resources just for the fact that he was older and he heard more through the grapevine. But I remember I think I saw like one or two promos for this and there was nothing in them suggesting that it would have zero to do uh with the movies. So I remember like I I don't remember a ton about watching them when they originally aired, other than the fact that it took me like. Maybe two or three, maybe even four episodes to realize, yeah, Jason's not showing up because I think even through the first episode, as a kid, you're just assume like I think I assumed at the time, oh well, it's probably just some intricate story that they have to weave him in here, and this is kind of weird, but I'll I'll figure it out in a few episodes, and once you kind of get the concept down. You know, as being a young kid that you realize, okay, no, this is the show. And uh, Jason's not walking into the shop to uh, retrieve, like, a cursed machete or something. So,
2: (laughs) I mean, there was definitely rumors on the – yeah, I don't know if it was the playground or wherever when I was a teenager that the final episode of it – was about them trying to find Jason's mask. I think that's a pretty common rumor about this show. Mm -hmm. It might even still float around today to some extent for people not too familiar with it. But yeah, no, it's just important to get it right out of the way, right off the bat. This has nothing to do with Friday the 13th, the movie series, which, you know what, in some ways for me is a good thing. Uh, I know, Mike, you're aware. I'm not a huge fan of the Friday the 13th movie series. And in fact, I have a lot of love for some of the less loved (laughs) portions of that series, including one starring one of the stars of this show, which is another connection with that uh, franchise. I just want to mention the other thing that I knew, even as a a young person about this show, was that it was Canadian. At least it was filmed in Canada. Uh, And I don't know how I knew that. It was just kind of a feeling. Maybe it was something that they promoted here in Canada to a slight extent, but also the fact that there were a lot of Canadian actors who would appear in smaller parts. I wouldn't have been aware at that time that Canadian directors were involved as well, including some very famous ones, as you'll luckily get to see. But yeah, so the Canadianness and the fact that it wasn't what I was expecting were the two things I most remembered from it. My own uh, revisiting of it has been very minor. I was part of um, a retrospective for David Cronenberg a few years back, uh, where we watched all of his films and all of his TV work, and he directed an episode of this. So I did watch it then, and enjoyed that very much. So hey, I'm I'm in a good mood. I'm feeling positive, right? Let, let's watch uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the series. There you go. Yeah, and I uh, and I, I also
1: I, I scanned the wiki pages of the series overall uh, earlier today, and I did read that it, the original title was the Thirteenth Hour. The producer or the creator never intended to directly uh, tie it to the Friday the 13th film series, but uh, I I don't know if it was kind of suggested to them, hey, uh, you know what would make more people watch it (laughs) is if they maybe thought – that there was a connection so let's go ahead and change the uh title and give maybe the false sense of hope and yeah it it definitely created confusion for my age group at the time but much like doug i mean once i got over the fact that okay this isn't a jason Voorhees related series i actually kind of like was fine with it it's just you know obviously it was hard to avoid that initial confusion, but I actually do like the concept of the show for what for what it is. Now, how they executed that, that's what we'll kind of get into as we go through the series.
2: I mean, in some <laughs> ways, it's a, it's a real success story, right? I mean, the fact is, you're, what you were saying, with Mike, it, it makes total sense. You had a series that was called something else. You have the producer of the Friday the 13th movies. He has the ability to call it that. It's much easier to sell with that title. Well, they did it. They sold it with that title. And it lasted, you know, three seasons, three full seasons, which is, you know, for a syndicated show, isn't bad at all.
0: And now that the youngins are done talking, let me tell you a little bit about the 18-year-old who watched this. Um, I'm going to completely disagree with Mike because I knew 100% that this series did not involve Jason before Episode 1 aired. I distinctly remember the trailer that was, or, well, commercial that was airing on the channel that aired it. And Curious Goods was even in the commercial. Like, the, the commercial opened with the front, the storefront of Curious Goods. And the the couple of commercials that I saw, you know, they had Jack, they had Ryan, they had Mickey, uh, maybe a quick shot of Lewis, and that was it. And I think that was kind of the talk at the time um, amongst, like, horror fans of my age group. We were like, oh, is anybody going to watch this thing that doesn't actually involve Jason? You know, when people, my friends, the people in my circles knew that Jason wasn't, wasn't going to be in it. Few of them decided to watch it. I absolutely wanted to watch it because I love the franchise. Yes, I love Jason, but I also just love anything with the Friday the 13th title on it. It doesn't necessarily have to be set at Crystal Lake or involve a hockey mask killer necessarily. I mean, there's a movie from like the 60s or 50s, I want to say, that was actually also called Friday the 13th. Not a horror film at all, but it did kind of talk about um you know bad luck and aspects of you know suspicion and not suspicion uh superstition excuse me superstition right, right. things like that so I am just an overall fan. I remember watching the first episode and just loving it and just thinking, yes, I am I am on board for this. I am very okay with them kind of expanding the the universe, the Friday the thirteenth universe. I mean don't forget, I'm I'm also one of the few people in my circle that was not upset with Halloween three and Michael Myers not being in that movie. I loved Halloween three when I walked out of the theater. And I was thinking, oh, this is awesome. If they just give us like a different story every year set around Halloween, this could turn into my favorite series. Instead, they bring back, uh, you know, the Shatner Masked Killer to do a couple of subpar movies. Wait, a couple? Eh, More like six. But whatever. (laughs) The point is, I like when franchises take a chance. I like when they do different things. And I've already said Friday the 13th is my favorite horror film franchise. And part of why I love it. It's because every movie isn't the same. Yeah, you get all the Paramount movies that have a lot of similarities. I totally understand that. But as soon as New Line jumped in, you're getting stuff like Jason Goes to Hell, Freddy vs. Jason, Jason X, uh, admittedly not the greatest movie in the franchise. But if you're a fan, it, you still see the entertainment value in it. So, yeah, from my my experience with the show, was always positive. But let's see if that
2: continues with our that That was the nicest way to say... I love this shameless cash in.
0: <laughs> I, hey, you know what? It didn't cost me any money. <laughs> so I'm okay with it, you know. All right, let's go ahead and get into our first episode. Season one, episode one, first aired on October third, nineteen ninety seven. Uh we are looking at director William Fruitt, writer Frank Mancuso, Bill Taub, and Larry B. Williams. Of course. Wait, that's start- gotta be eighty seven, right? Did you actually oh, say, I 97? say 97? Very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> our synopsis for our first episode is as follows Two cousins, Ryan Dylan, or Ryan, how the hell does he pronounce his name? Dalian? Ryan Dalian and Mickey Foster inherit an antique shop from their uncle. Together with his partner, they must track down cursed objects that their devil worshipping uncle had created. The first object is a demonic killer doll. Hmm, that concept's never been done. Uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead and tell me uh, some general thoughts on this episode? All right, so
1: going into the... I, I can't remember if, if I already said during my little spiel. Uh, as far as the individual episodes, I don't remember a whole lot. So this is mostly going to be like fresh thoughts. Now, I assume as we go through the series, some memories will be you know triggered depending on the episode. But I... I, d- I didn't remember much about this episode as I was watching but I I'm going to assume because this was the first episode it kind of felt like there were two major things going on because we we kind of got our our actual intro uh setting up our characters and the shop and everything about it while simultaneously trying to do you know the cursed item with the the evil doll which that really kind of takes over in like the last 15 minutes where we get lots of cursed doll action. I mean, she, the doll does do other things throughout the episode, but it really felt like the first episode was kind of spent split uh, between, you know, fixing up the shop and then figuring out, oh, everything's cursed. We got to, you know, we get the introduction to uh, the childhood friend of the original shopkeep owner or shop. Yeah. What, what, am I saying that right? Shopkeeper. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess, we're, you know, right off the bat, I'll, I'll say I, I love, like I said, I, I, lo- I do love the concept of, of cursed items. Um, I feel like in a show like this, something you're probably going to run into is a lot of familiar ter- or territory when it comes to, like, the cursed items, probably from, like, shows or movies you've seen before. Cursed doll. You know, it, it's not exactly a new concept. But for what it was, I mean, the doll itself, kind of cheesy. It did, it did have the creepy look. But the doll was kind of vicious. And I did kind of uh, get a kick out of the fact that the doll's powers, like, are kind of vast. Like, at first, I think it, like, slashed the guy's neck. Um, and then it just turned into, like, Carrie doll, where, like, uh, and I, I guess I'd be remiss not to bring up the fact that uh, Sarah Pauly, the actress, is uh, introduced in this series. I, I can't say for sure if it's the first thing she's ever done, but she was awfully young. Um, and uh, she, she's basically holding up the doll at times, and the doll's just, you know, either uh, using the force or telekinesis <laughs> to. Uh, <laughs> to do you know move people around and uh if i if i had to say general thoughts on the first episode just i i would say i for a pilot episode I, I still liked it there wasn't i don't think there was anything major conceptually you know out of bounds with this one there was nothing too off the cuff nothing not expected but it's a pilot episode which a lot of times are made for like setting things up and kind of uh letting you know what you're in for. And I I do like kind of like after they lock the doll away and uh, our two characters, which I will call uh, (laughs) for at the uh, risk of being laughed at our original Mulder and Scully, right? Uh, I I love, I love at the end when they, when they're like, gee, I wonder what's going to come next. And then the final dialogue is the, uh, shopkeeper like oh no or whatever like obviously yeah. he's probably hearing about something so i like that it was a nice little cliffhanger setup for the series but yeah i'll leave it at that i kind of rambled but yeah that's general thoughts
2: doug come on in here buddy yeah so i feel like i should come on every episode of this podcast just to to <laughs> give some canadian background to what's going on here to a certain extent and i'm going to start with the director william fruitt now here in canada william fruitt, is best known as the writer of the movie Going Down the Road from 1970. He's one of the, the, he wrote the screenplay for it. Going Down the Road was like a monumental movie for Canadian cinema at the time. It was a Canadian made, Canadian starring movie. It made a huge impact, basically launched the Canadian film industry of what it is. And he became like a central face in that industry, particularly making genre movies like he made Spasms in 1983. You may know that one, Killer Party from 86, and Blue Monkey in 87, which also featured Sarah Polly, by the way. That was a film that she made before this, she had some roles. She did a lot of TV stuff before this uh, movie. Sarah Polly, I'm glad that you mentioned her. She's very young here. A few years before uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen which probably was her most visible role of childhood until she was on Road to Avonlea, which it, if you were growing up in Canada in the 90s, you watched a lot of Road to Avonlea. So you were very familiar with Sarah Polly, child actress. Uh, most of what I would say about this episode would echo what Mike said. The, the thing about it being the pilot. Is that it has to do a lot of work to set up everything. And so half this episode really does feel like that setup. And it's I I like this once they introduce the Jack Marshak character because it breaks up the bickering between the two cousins at its core, played by John LeMay and Louise Roby. And you know, I don't mind the, the the tension between these two cousin characters. I, I was reading in the book about this series that they intentionally made them cousins to avoid, like, a moonlighting-type situation where you keep asking, will they, won't they? But my understanding is that they do a lot of sexual tension between them anyway, so making them cousins is going to be even weirder, I think, the more that you watch this show. Uh, but... Li- I think John LeMay is actually really good. Uh, he, he adds a lightness to it that it really needs. Unfortunately, uh, on this episode, Louise Roby is not given much to do outside of being very unpleasant. And she's supposed to be like the serious, uh, aloof character compared to this goofy guy. They even have that moment, which is in so many shows, where she's like, we're going to sell off all of these antiques. And he's like, over my dead body. And they cut to the sale already in progress. <laughs> Classic sitcom stuff. Once it settles down, once the ground is laid and it gets to the killer doll, uh, I I was into it quite a bit. I mean, it it is very much of the level of syndicated entertainment at that time in that there's actually a surprising amount of violence. There is a slit throat that is pretty well done here, and I wasn't expecting it. My memory of this show is that it is fairly bloodless for the most part, but they did obviously take advantage of the fact that they had a little bit more freedom to do more with the content on this show. So that was nice to see, though it mostly, you know, it's a lot of the beats that you would expect, uh, you know, that she gets rid of her stepmother that she doesn't like, meaning Sarah Polly uses the doll to get rid of her stepmother. The doll seems to have kind of undefined levels of power. And then it all kind of culminates in this playground set piece, which is kind of fun. I really liked it. And, you know, Sarah Polly is very good as a child actress. So overall, I would say this is a big old thumbs up, but also with the uh, caveat that this is supposed to be one of the better episodes of the series, so you got to watch out there. One other little tidbit, just simply because I read it earlier, which is that this was like the third or fourth episode that they filmed specifically because they wanted to make sure that the two leads had they worked out their chemistry. They'd worked out in terms of the, uh, the 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 process of making the episodes. They were a lot more comfortable with it. So so even though this is the first and was always designed to be the first episode, obviously, because it was all set up. Uh, they'd already filmed several episodes before this to uh, to ease in.
0: As far as I go, I had a good time with this episode. I, like I said, I remember liking these characters throughout the series run. So yeah, the fact that they're a little uh, kind of, you know, confrontational in the episode, it does wear thin, but at least it doesn't last long. As Doug said, once Jack gets there, all the bickering kind of ends You know, once they realize what they did with their little uh, fire sale, I agree with Doug that Mickey really doesn't get much to do in this episode. She legitimately is just eye candy. It's terrible because, I mean, her her character does get a little bit more fleshed out as the series goes, as with all the characters in the show. But, yeah, in this one, she's legitimately eye candy. It also really bothered me that she completely changes personality from the opening scene that she's in to when she gets to the actual shop. Like, (laughs) she actually says, darling. Are you kidding me? <laughs> she <laughs> actually said that to her fiance. Darling, don't worry. Oh,
1: she, has the big, she has the big 80s hair going, too.
0: <laughs> hair I love. I mean, especially redheads don't usually have that nice thick hair that's, that, I mean, curly without being, you know, too ultra kinky. No, I really like that hair uh, for whatever it's worth. I mean, I, I, hey, I, I was a 17-year-old when this show first aired. Yeah, I liked Mickey. Sue me. <laughs> <laughs> obviously I'm pretty sure my opinion of her is going to change as this series goes along but you know fingers crossed that I don't end up hating this woman by the time we're done enjoy the, uh, the character development the introduction to the store I uh, love seeing RG Armstrong in anything yes. so even if it's only like five minutes I'll take it and like Doug said once it gets to the actual uh, quote-unquote Annabelle part of this, the episode it, it definitely ramps up the horror element of it all you know, because the first half of the show, it's it's really more about explanation. You get a little bit of uh, exposition at the be- – not exposition, but, you know, a little bit of setup of, uh, you know, Uncle Lewis at the beginning. You don't really know what's going on. There's no real context to the whole thing. It's kind of got to be explained later on by Jack and then the manifest once they find that. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like the episode flowed well. I thought it was a good episode to start the series. And for whatever it's worth, it got me to keep watching. As I said, I – watched every single episode when this aired back then.
2: I don't know what the hell was wrong with me, but hey, I I, I watched
0: a lot more stuff than this, I'll tell you that.
2: I'm actually going to stop on you here for a second, Mike. (laughs) Go ahead. ahead, I was just going (laughs) to say, simply because for those who haven't seen this show, or... uh, I think maybe we might want to elaborate a little bit more about, about the general concept, which is about the cursed items and them having to track it down. I think we get it across. But I have to say, even with – I had a, like, good, a good amount of knowledge about this series. The opening sequence where you see the uncle, you know, yell into the ether about, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I'd forgotten that it basically he had made some sort of pact with Satan. A lot of that flew over my head when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, I – I I remembered enough to know that it was a shop full of, like, cursed antiques yeah. or items, but I had forgotten, like, why they were cursed in the first place. And as I was watching it, it was like, you know, little details kind of trickled back, like, oh, yeah, because he did this. But if if I would have tried to, like, talk about this without, like, seeing it again, I would have totally forgotten that aspect of it too uh one other thing i was just going to bring up regarding sarah Pauli's character the kid it's at one point i I was almost like cracking up at the fact that i was like man this kid is is like awfully okay with like uh seeing adults injured and killed (laughs) like she just for wanting to get the doll taken away and I, I'm I'm trying to remember because I know certain items, like certain episodes in the series, they definitely imply like the item. Once like the user starts using it, it almost kind of like they them to take over the possess. Yeah, it kind of possessed them. And I was I was trying to remember, did that happen in this episode or was it just happenstance that she seemed pretty okay? <laughs> with the just an people evil hurt. kid who
2: hooked up with a <laughs> yeah. evil doll. I look That's at the end, end, it's like. Look, we well, we we've gotten the doll back. Spoiler alert, by the way. They get the doll back. We we lock it away. Hey, is that kid going to be okay? He's like, sure. After a decade of therapy, <laughs> <That's> perfect. <laughs>
0: I, honestly, I found little girl sociopath. I mean, that little girl willingly. <laughs> basically murdered two people granted the doll did the hard part you know the doll did the heavy lifting but the actual lifting of the doll itself was done by the little girl so i'm thinking the exact same thing at the end of this episode i'm like is this girl you know was she possessed and didn't know what she was doing because if if at the end of the episode she actually has a knowledge and remembers everything she did that little girl is going to grow up to be an absolute sociopath because she's going to remember that she got away with murder twice
2: she's going to do more damage as an adult than she could have done with the fucking doll as a kid. She, she, she's yeah. Gonna, so she's gonna I would take like lots movie. of
1: drugs and go to a rave in a movie. And then she's going to survive a zombie apocalypse, I guess
0: oh. <laughs> it's setting her up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, let's talk about the story a little bit. Let's get into this story. Obviously we've already kind of explained that, you know, this is a shop called curious goods. If we haven't mentioned that yet, of course, which almost was the name of the podcast, but I thought that was a little too derivative. So I, I, decided on something a little bit different. Mike and I decided on Instead, something. Instead,
2: you decided to tease people in the same way that the people who made this show teased them by putting Crystal Lake in there. <laughs> well, isn't that 100% poignant? I yeah, it. it certainly is. It's on <laughs> I point.
0: I <totally> adore <laughs> it. Hell, our avatar is Jason's mask, so whatever. I, I hope I'll <laughs> do that. But yeah, like I said, we're introduced to Uncle Lewis, who, you know, for whatever reason, is running this shop where he doesn't want to sell anything in it. Like I said, the opening scene doesn't really have a lot of context because as I'm watching it and he's yelling at that couple for wanting to buy that doll, I'm like, well, why don't you lock the fucking door, idiot? And then I realize, well, it's a deal with the devil. (laughs) Even if you lock the door, the devil would probably unlock it and get more people in there. So I totally, you know, the, the supernatural element of it does explain away a lot of the plot holes. But ultimately... Uncle Lewis, at some point, made a deal with the devil. As Jack, his childhood friend, explains, he has a fear of dying and makes a deal with the devil for immortality. And what is his part of the deal? He must sell cursed objects in the devil's name, of course. All of the objects in the store are cursed in one way or another. And obviously, as the series goes along, we're going to see all the different items and the different curses that they all possess. I don't remember all of them, obviously, but I do remember a couple. I remember an episode with a makeup kit that I'm actually really looking forward to because I remember <laughs> that, that being that, my favorite episode
1: <laughs> that happens to be the one I remember it was like a vanity mirror, like a, one the, of those snap open ones yeah, exactly um, and right. I oh. I think it like whoever looks in the mirror with her looking at it at the same time like falls in love with her or something like that. I, I think that's oh, how it worked vaguely. No, the
0: one I'm thinking of um, this was a guy the guy oh. The and he was using the makeup to make himself younger. And, but the, huh, but okay. the curse was that every time he took off the makeup, he looked older. So, you know, he would look younger by using the makeup, but like I said, every time he removes it, he would like gain five years on his face or whatever. I, you know, I ultimately could be thinking of an entirely different series. We'll find, well, we'll find out. I'll,
1: I'll, t- I'll tell you what, Venom. we better stop talking about future episodes because Doug's going to really be enticed to keep coming back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's Doug's desire to work with us on 72 episodes of this series. Tell me more about these
2: cursed mirrors. <laughs> He's like, how many episodes involve cursed mirrors and makeup? <laughs> it's important to note, I think, that because this is a syndicated series in the 1980s, and I mean, this is the case for syndicated series in the 90s as well, there's very little continuity on this show. So there isn't a lot of ongoing storylines that like you would see in the later part of the 90s. Even with, you know, it, there's a little bit. There's a little bit of growth in these characters, is my understanding. And the other thing that's kind of neat, notable and that I'm glad that I was part of this episode is that this doll does show up in several more episodes going forward, so they, they at least remember that this was an important part of the continuity.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I remember the, one of the music box episodes, that music box is noticeable in the in the vault whenever they go in there, you know, because later in the series, it actually becomes kind of a um, a staple at the end of the show to lock up whatever it is that they repossessed yeah. or whatever. So yeah, whenever you go into that vault, yeah, be very careful and look around in the background. You're going to see all sorts of familiar items. Well, but, I think
1: that, I think that is an important distinction between a show like this and something like Freddy's nightmares, which is a true anthology where each episode's a different story although there is a couple times they do do continuations but with Friday with this series it's like yes each episode centers around a new item but we have recurring characters so I have zero memory of like any little side arcs between the characters that might continue throughout the series now I do know at one point they introduce like a second guy and then there's a, a few episodes where there's like where all three of them are in them, and and then this guy leaves for the third season, I believe. But other than that, I don't remember much about, like, the character stories, if there even is any. So that'll be... Something to keep an eye on, too, going forward.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Continuity is big for a lot of us. Some of us kind of forgive the lack of continuity, but it is nice, as Doug mentioned, to see items in the vault from previous episodes and maybe even from future episodes. Who knows? As I said, after the opening, uh, the cold open, if you will, where, you know, Uncle Lewis is kind of taken by some entity by just the worst CGI fire you've ever seen. I don't even think it's CGI. It's probably like a camera trick of some kind, like a... (laughs) What do you call it? I I I totally forget what it was called. But anyway, yeah, some pretty bad effects throughout the episode. But ultimately, you know, it, it's from 87. It, it's for whatever it's worth. It's got its charm. I'm still a fan, at least after episode one. I'm still very much a fan. So, again, uh, after we get our cold open, we are introduced first to Mickey, who <laughs> kind of comes off as like a Connecticut snob, like, you know, one of those blue blood wives that, you know, just insipid person that you'd never, ever want to be around. And then when she gets to the shop, it I feel like she takes a complete personality change. Like she's, yeah, she's timid because she's, you know, a little freaked out by the old store and all the weird items in it, blah, blah, blah. But it's really odd that she is just a completely different person when she's around her fiance, who, by the way, is pretty much a piece of shit. But yeah. I think that's, <laughs> that was their intention. He's that late eighties douchebag lawyer, the wall street wannabe type guy that, Oh, God, he even makes a comment about, oh, well, maybe we could sue your cousin for more control of the store. Yikes. That's a red flag. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently she saw the red flag because I don't think we ever see her fiancé ever again in the series. Uh, A plus there. (laughs) But, yeah, when she gets to the store, she meets Mickey. They have a weird interaction because, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, she meets Ryan. She is Mickey. And Ryan basically was told that his cousin, Michael, would be um, running the store with him, so he was fully expecting a man. They have that uh, uncomfortable situation, that uncomfortable meeting, if you will. We do get the shot of him kind of checking out his cousin from top to bottom, which is just cringy as shit. <laughs> but in his credit, he probably didn't know it was her cousin yet, so I'll forgive him there. But, yeah, they have their awkward introduction, and they start going back and forth on what to do with the store. At one point in the episode, they find the manifest accidentally by kind of twisting one of the banisters on the uh, next to the stairs. And obviously it doesn't really mean a lot to them. It just looks like a normal manifest items that were sold, the people that they were sold to things like that. But then right at the end of their fire sale, where they basically they decide to just sell off everything in the store. Should we say Mickey decided to sell off everything in the store? Cause ultimately Ryan wanted to run the store. So they decide to sell off everything in the store. They end up selling most of what's in the store. Uh, Ryan makes the comment that we should be able to sell off the rest of this stuff tomorrow and then be done with the shop. And then our little friend Jack shows up like a Sith Lord hiding in the attic. He comes down with his uh, brown robe on, his Obi-Wan Kenobi robe. And what is he armed with? Like a magic wand or something? I forget.
2: (laughs) Something like that.
0: It literally literally looked like he thought he was a wizard and he was holding them at bay with his magic wand. But whatever. Uh, Obviously, the introductions happen. He's, He's wondering why they're talking about their uncle in the past tense. They let him know that he has passed away. And then we get the explanation that we kind of have already given that, you know, Uncle Lewis made a deal with the devil. Um, his half of the deal was to sell these cursed items, and he would basically live forever. He would have eternal life. We we get a little bit of an explanation of the cold open where Jack says, well, you know, it, the, the reason he might not be here is because he probably went back on the deal and probably decided he didn't want to do this anymore, which, if you remember the cold open, it kind of makes sense, you know. We, we see R.G. Armstrong, Uncle Lewis, you know, very frustrated, you know, a couple of customers come in interested in the uh, quote-unquote Annabelle doll. He decides that the He's not going to sell it to him. He actually screams at the top of his lungs that nothing in the store is for sale and basically just decides. I I think he even says out loud, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. And that's when we see, you know, something kind of take Uncle Lewis from us. Not the not the greatest looking scene, but again, it's charming. So I'll give it its credit. And then at that point. We basically get the parents from the cold open who came interested with the doll. Uh, The dad actually comes back to the store six months. This is six months later, so... I can't believe a dad had that good of a memory to remember this random doll that his daughter wanted. But there you go. So he goes in. He pays for the doll. Mickey is reluctant to sell it because earlier in the episode, she thinks that she saw the doll move and stare at her, which, of course, the doll absolutely did. Pretty much the rest of the episode is Mickey and Ryan trying to track down the doll. They they track down the house of the owner. When they get there, stepmom has already somehow... Uh, ended up in the hospital. The scene there is basically mom. Oh, man. And mom. Holy shit. I hate to use I hate to use this word. But God damn. What a cunt. I absolutely hated her. I, I, the whole time I'm screaming at the father, defend your daughter, for God's sake. I mean, who who the hell? Jesus, she must have this guy's balls in her purse because he literally never admonishes her for yelling at his daughter for something that's completely unwarranted. But, you know, that's the episode. We got to set up the uh, evil stepmother, if you will. And she is exactly that. Uh, She basically there's a scene where she tries to take the doll away from uh, Mary, Sarah Polly. And, you know, the doll basically through telekinesis of some kind, as Mike said, or maybe the force basically takes a roller skate. Uh, wheels it over to the top of the stairs. Now, this is the thing I don't understand about this scene. Mom is basically, or stepmom, is yelling at Mary to give her the doll. And as soon as Mary lifts up the doll to give it to her, mom is suddenly scared. The doll hasn't started moving or anything. She's just like, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do? It's like, what do you mean, what do you do? You asked her for the damn doll. (laughs) Take it. Of course, she backs up, steps on the the roller skate, Falls down the stairs. I was cheering because I thought that was the end of stepmom, but alas, no, she survives her fall. Mickey and Ryan end up getting to the uh, to the house just as the ambulance is taking the family away. They, they have a little interaction with Mary, and they actually both see the doll kind of, what, hiss at them or something? It was kind of weird. Basically, you know, move her eyes and mouth and, you know, make a weird gesture towards them. They both kind of are taken aback. Mary is then rushed into the ambulance, not that Mary's hurt, but of course it's stepmom that was hurt. They're all going to the hospital and then we get our inevitable hospital scene with the doll doing I don't know what to step mom like I I don't know if she was choking her stuffing something in her mouth I like the, the camera is perfectly set up so that the back of the doll is facing the sh- the camera and you have no idea what she's doing and then suddenly you know mom's hot, heart stops beating we get the we get the great shot of the uh, the EKG it goes flatline and then we see mom kind of go limp and the doll I the doll just kind of had her hands On mom's neck. Now, this is a porcelain doll. It's not like she has kung fu grip; like she can actually grab anything. So, again, suspension of disbelief. I'll allow it. Uh, The doll is obviously evil. So, who knows? Maybe maybe the doll doesn't even have to touch her to kill her. You know, maybe she just kind of made Mary do all this so that Mary would be, uh, you know, an accomplice, you know, aiding and abetting, if you will. So that, I guess, the doll's conscience is clear that she's not the only murderer. I don't know. I'm speculating, but whatever. We finally get a ridiculous scene where uh, Mary has her stuffed animals kind of attacking her nanny who's watching her while dad is uh, taking care of the funeral arrangements for his stepmother or for his wife, his ex-wife, Mary's stepmother. And basically, you know, there's a there's a conversation about cookies. Mary gets mad. She holds up uh, Annabelle. What was the actual name of the doll? I've been calling her Annabelle.
2: That's a good question.
0: I'm not 100% sure. She actually did call her something. Like, she even introduced her at one point, and I don't remember. I want to say something like Lena or Mina or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. She ends up lifting the doll up, pointing it towards the nanny. Suddenly stuffed animals start coming to life, and it it doesn't sound nearly as cool as I'm describing it, I assure you. And then suddenly a jump rope kind of... Uh finagles its way off the shelf and around the nanny's throat, basically you know choking her to death, but luckily, our heroes, Mickey and Ryan, arrive just in time to, you know, stop the stop the doll from choking the nanny out. And Mickey sees that the kid is out in the backyard on a swing set playing with the doll. She goes out. They have their inevitable interaction. The girl, obviously, Mary, obviously, is very aware that they're here to take her doll. I mean, Mary knows this doll is evil. Whether she's possessed or not, she knows that there's something about this doll. And she knows that these two people are here to take it away from her. We have a ridiculous scene on a... <laughs> what, what is that? Is that a merry-go-round tilt-a-whirl? What the fuck do we call that? I can't remember. Those are called, but I think we all know what those are. What yeah. yeah, those are. yeah
1: it, it spins around and you hang on and
0: uh, get sick. <laughs> yeah. Or don't hang on and get a concussion like I did. Yeah, Whatever. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and what we what we end up with is this ridiculous scene of two adults who apparently have trouble getting a doll away from a child. Now, yes, I understand that the merry-go-round thing is spinning and, you know, inertia is forcing them to the outer edge of it. But there are literal scenes where Mickey is about six inches away from the girl, and she makes the lamest attempt to grab the doll. Like, she's purposely trying to look like she's trying to grab it, but coming up short every single time. So, again, a little bit of suspension of disbelief oh, there. You, you,
1: you mean when uh, Mickey was chasing her on the playground and the doll <laughs> unleashed a mean swing at her that <laughs> barely looked like it even touched her? <laughs> oh, man. And, and speaking, speaking of that scene, because now that we're – on it. Yeah. Was the was the writing suggesting that the doll went into like super evil mode that caused like overcast skies and oh, thunder? Yeah. Or was that just bad weather? <laughs> like, I was like, quickly, I was like, I was like what in the world is going on here?
0: I don't know. Doug knows William Fruitt better than I do. I, I thought it was he- coincidence. But
2: I, I think we're supposed to think that that doll has a lot more power than we had seen up to that point. Maybe the more kills it gives, it more power. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Otherwise, why yeah. would it have to just smother the mother or whatever the fuck it does by just <laughs> because, laying because on it?
1: I I feel like in that case, the doll needs like its own special confinement, like lockup, even beyond the other cursed. Yeah, items, you would think so, so, right, with, with all that all level of power.
0: Exactly. I mean, I, there's a reason Annabelle's kept in a case because apparently, I mean, ultimately it's a different story. This is a legitimately possessed doll, whereas Annabelle is a conduit for a demon. Whole other story. I understand, but we we do see the obvious similarities. And the doll is named Veda, by the way. Veda, thank you. Thank you very much. I knew it was something that ended in an A. So like I said, after Mickey and Ryan get the doll away from her, they're able to take it back to the shop. Instantly, Mary goes from evil little sociopath to crying child after she's um, separated from the doll and thrown off the merry-go-round thing. She's instantly back to, you know, just a crying kid. Mickey, out, (laughs) Mickey like grabs this child and kisses her and i'm thinking hey stranger danger You're not supposed <laughs> to be touching random children okay so anyway uh we're we end up back at the store you know we see them put the put the doll back in the vault i think there is uh a little teaser at the end if you will or a, a stinger i think they call it and uh basically that's our that's our series pilot we are now set up for the Friday the 13th series moving forward. We know the major players. We know what they're doing. And obviously at this point, we're just hoping that the cursed items get better and better with every episode. Obviously, you know, you're going to get varying degrees of results with every episode, which is the whole point of this podcast is uh, us going through that. If you well,
1: real quick, if you, I did find, or I navigated to, uh, so there's a wiki page for like the overall series, but then it breaks it down. The three seasons and then even further. And now I'm on the episode to episode guide and it actually gives you a little, for each episode it'll, you know, it'll give you the, the stats like uh season one, episode one, the name director and a lot of stuff. But then it'll give you a synopsis and uh, it says the synopsis, cursed antique, obviously a doll that kills people for its owners. What's listed. But then what's cool, it says villain and fate. And uh, <laughs> I just cracked up because it says Mary, Mary survives, but speculated to suffer severe psychological trauma. <laughs> I love it. Which is accurate, because that goes with the dialogue that was suggested in the end. Yeah,
0: episode. yeah, that one throwaway line from Ryan, absolutely. Which was still rather funny, I will say. One yeah, I haven't...
1: wonder if... Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder if... Because the way... And it could just be coincidence how it says a doll that kills people for its owner. So maybe it's like something that the... The whoever's in possession of the doll almost initiates through possession or something, because you do notice when, like, once the doll gets ripped away from the kid, it's not like the doll is still, like, talking, trying to fight or anything. It just goes yeah. limp like any old doll. So there must be something suggested that uh, it, there's a possession factor. Maybe it takes advantage of the person in possession of it.
0: I wish they would have implied that a little bit more. I understand that Mary went back to being a normal kid as soon as they separated her, but yeah, the whole time I'm thinking this this girl's going to have a very very interesting adolescence and teenage years. <laughs>
2: well, I'd what I we haven't I'd be- yet is the soundtrack, the especially the opening theme to oh. fr- fr- the, the the series which is I think one of the things that people most remember about this series is that mm-hmm. opening theme, which is very, very creepy, uh, composed by Fred Mullen, who also was the composer of the soundtracks of Friday the 13th, Part 8 and 7, so he certainly mm-hmm. was connected to the quote-unquote series, but most notably, uh, because again, he's also Canadian, uh, mm-hmm. a Canadian composer, he did the music for David Cronenberg's Fast Company, the race car film.
1: Ah, yeah, mm-hmm. and since you did bring up the intro, I, I think that's kind of like a reoccurring theme with this era of like these horror anthology shows is the, uh, the series, the episodes might be a mixed bag, but damn, they could sure as hell put together an intro for like yeah. all of them. Like, yep. I, like the Tales <laughs> from the dark side intro is like one of my all time favorite Absolutely. horror intros of anything ever.
0: Still gives me chills. Absolutely. When he says that last line and that last keyboard note is held down. Yeah. I still get chills. Okay. Yeah.
1: I remember the, the first couple of times I saw Tales from the Dark Side, it affected, that intro affected me so much that when we'd be taking, like, road trips or something, and I'd be looking, you know, out the window to the side. If we're in any type of, like, country or forest setting, I would immediately think of, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a dark side in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. And same with me. I love this theme song. It's probably one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. The one thing that stuck with me over the years is the great theme song. I legitimately enjoy it. Uh, It's great to see, you know, a composer with actual pedigree from the franchise come in and do this theme song, which does, you know, iconic might be a stretch, you know, for a series (laughs) that isn't exactly popular. But for us genre heads who, you know, consume this kind of content. This is literally, you know, this and Tales from the Dark Side, definitely. Even Monsters had a great intro. Even though the music wasn't a big part of Monsters' intro, that was an awesome intro uh, with the family and all. So, yeah, uh, I can't disagree that this theme song is pretty awesome. Well, guys, it's getting close to uh, closing time here at the shop. Uh, You guys have anything else you want to say? I mean, I think you guys are in for a ride.
2: Uh. I mean, I, I look, I've, I've already hinted at it a couple of times. I, I am a big fan of Jason Goes to Hell. Uh, so when I think of John LeMay, the the, uh, character, the actor who plays Ryan in this show, I think of him more from that movie than I think of him from the show. I do think that he's a very welcome presence here. I think I've already said that. But I, I think that... I hope that Louise Roby eases into that role a little bit. Like you said, she already has changed a bit even by the end of this episode. I hope they actually make for a team that is, uh, I just, it, it's going to be so hard to set up all of these things where they're just showing up at people's houses and okay. have to explain without explaining why the hell they're there. And I just don't know how over, you know, 24, 48, plus, you know, 70 episodes that 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 the setups are are they going to be the same if they're going to mix it up a lot but i mean i'm i'm excited to see where it goes from here and i'm glad you're doing this because it is a even if the plots are not always the most engaging and i don't know that for a fact but but my understanding is that would be i mean all anthology shows are like that to a certain extent the fact that there's you know, interesting actors who pop up and uh, even for me, interesting locations that pop up and people involved with it. Are, are, it, it, it just has a really interesting connection to genre cinema at the time um, and, and just sort of the atmosphere of anthologies that were going on at that time period. So good luck with it. Hopefully I can come back a little bit later in the uh, in this show. I, when I mean, like forward into the podcast episodes and see where we are at that point.
0: Absolutely. Well said. Very well said. Mike, any closing comments?
2: Uh, do, You know, kind of piggyback
1: off what Doug said. I mean, I, I love the setup of the cursed items in the shop that they're trying to retrieve. I, Because my memory overall is so, you know, evaporated by now on it, I do kind of wonder, like, how... um, how, Like, it'd be interesting to see if, like, there's ever a point where, you know the public in the shorts and they start learning about the shop and like, do people start coming to them with like odd occurrences? Because I'm, I'm assuming the way it makes it seem is they don't really have a ton of like records of the sales of where everything went. So it's like, are they going to have to just kind of monitor the news and say, Hey, uh, people are strangely dying. We don't know how let's just, Go investigate and see if it's because of a cursed item. Like, It'll be interesting to see how they handle the actual retrieval and like them figuring out that these deaths are caused by a cursed item to begin with. So that's something to keep an eye on going forward.
2: Very much so, very much so. i got to pick up oh, one other thing, sorry, oh, I know please. that you're about to finish. This is just important because I just remembered it. I was just reading through, there's a book, again, there's a lengthy book devoted to this series called Curious Goods, and I was just leaving through it a little bit, and they mentioned something that I had forgotten, which is that this show was not called Friday the 13th, the series in Canada, it was called Friday's Curse instead. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still knew of it as Friday the 13th, the series, because I probably saw it in syndication on the US channel. But uh, but yeah, so I guess the the, the Canadians, um, they there wasn't as as clear of an attempt to fool them <laughs> when it was first airing. What's funny is that now that you mentioned that I do have a vague
0: memory of visiting Niagara Falls, New York, um, sometime in the early 90s mm-hmm. and seeing a video, a, a videotape in like a convenience store, like in the bargain bin that said Friday's curse. And I'm like, ooh, what's this? This looks interesting. And then when I turned it over, I realized it was Friday the 13th, the series, and I didn't buy it. <laughs> so it's so a that, you know, show that's constantly trying to fool you. Yeah, Oh, hey. Ima-
1: imagine having that in your collection right now.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, right now. Jeez. Oh, my God. I'm thinking about all the Godzilla VHSs that I let die in my childhood. Oh, my God. Uh, the money I can have right now. All right, folks. Well, uh, the store will be closing in 10 minutes. Please bring your final purchases to the front for Mike to ring you out. And while we do that, let's ask our friend Doug Tilly where else people can hear his stuff.
2: Well, you can find my show Mortgage Board, every Monday at cinemasmortgageboard.com, where the latest episode is always available on cinepunks.com. It's a uh Umbrella Podcast, which has a lot of podcasts underneath that umbrella, a uh, podcast devoted to diverse topics such as the chronological career of Carol Kane, George Kennedy, Paul Bartel, Dick Miller, of course, Eric Roberts, as well as podcasts devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky and, and others. You can check that out, uh, including Jackie Chan. You can find that at com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. that's S-M-O-R-G, or you can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Doug. Uh, Mike, while you're ringing up those final purchases, where else can people hear you?
1: All right. Well, uh, No More Room in Hell is the main show that I do with uh, Venom here, as well as Derek. Um, We should be recording the new one in a week or two, I think. And Mm -hmm. Fresh Cuts is the weekly show where we're covering the latest in horror. Uh, The latest episode out is Glorious which is now on Shudder. And uh, we do have an episode recorded on the Orphan First Kill prequel that will be up uh, within uh, probably by early next week. And what else? Uh, I just started the new side cast. watch this movie, Mike, where I bring on a guest that picks a movie, kind of do a short little interview, and then we get into the movie. And wouldn't you know it, our guest here, Doug Tilley, Was the first guest on that, too. I see a a theme with uh,
2: Doug (laughs) always being a willing participant. I decided Um, to kill it in the crib by picking the life and death of (laughs) Colonel Blimp to talk about a movie that I mean, I love it. And I know it's a very beloved movie, but not necessarily the kind of movie that appeals to a lot of genre (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, uh, I do have three episodes of that out now. The latest is with uh, Brian Sammons as a guest, and I'm working on episode four, getting that scheduled, so uh, look for more of that. And uh, the only other active show I have is uh burning for springwood all it's not on a hiatus it's just a matter of getting us together again that's a uh, gary hill's brainchild much similar to this show we are covering Freddy's nightmares uh episode by episode and we the next episode we record will be the last two episodes of season one so if you can believe it we made it through a whole season of that very mixed bag on that show but it's always fun to record and uh, i think that's it for me venom
0: Awesome. Well, while I look up, lock up the shop, uh, let me go ahead and tell you about a couple of my things. Uh, the other uh, member of the No More Room in Hell family is called Creature Comforts. That is, of course, our creature feature show that I do with Mr. Don and and Derek B., uh, who is also on the main show. And our latest episode is episode 11, where we look at Phil Tippett's Mad God. Our next episode, we're going to be doing a Fantasia Fest um, special where we actually we got to see three Kaiju slash monster, you know, creature features from Japan that played at Fantasia Fest. We'll be getting, we'll be giving spoiler free reviews for those as most of those movies don't even have American release dates yet. So most of them are still on the embargo. So uh, we'll tell you everything that we can about each one. And uh, let's see, uh, various guest spots. Uh, Just yesterday, I did a guest spot on Lobo's Loot, which is a youtube show um this particular episode though we did lobo looks which is his commentary kind of is you know watch together type thing uh we basically watched solo yes the star wars film solo that got panned when it first came out and i was one of those people if you want to hear somebody change their opinion on a movie uh, please go ahead and check this out. It is available <laughs> on YouTube. I, I'm sorry, I, I I am now on the hill for solo. It was way more fun than I remembered it in theaters, but obviously that's a conversation for another show. So check that out on YouTube. You can find that on Lobo's Loot. I've done guest spots on the podcast under the stairs, the dark parade, very, you know, cut to the chase, various others. So, you know, look up Mr. Venom. I'm sure you'll find me. I've been on a thousand podcasts in the last two months, so I'm not too hard to find. And last but not least folks, thank you very much for visiting This is obviously a new venture for us, and the more folks that we get in here patronizing the shop, the better we're going to do. So the store is officially closed. Thank you all so much for visiting, and we'll see you next time. Go ahead and say goodbye to the folks. Goodbye. See ya. See you next time, folks.